0: This is our first episode of Femizo Now uh, in the third season. Uh, We are so happy to have a special guest with us, uh, who is Iman, Iman Masmoudi. Uh, She's a researcher in law and a student at Harvard, but also she's a Muslim entrepreneur and she has a a great startup called Tunic. Uh, she will go through her story she will tell us about her career as a female muslim living in the, U- in the us and how she uh, she started her uh, entrepreneurial journey assalamu uh, alaikum, iman uh, alaykum sanan. thank you for having me thank you so much for accepting to be our first guest we are so happy to have you as uh, like an icon female uh, muslim <laughs> And I think my first question will be, can you introduce yourself to us? Like, who are you and what is your journey?
1: Yeah, um, so I am uh, a Tunisian American uh, Muslim. I grew up in North Carolina, but I went back to Tunis, uh, where my whole family lives every summer. Um, I'm currently a law student, so I'm in the second year of the JD program at Harvard Law School. Um, But I also am the co-founder of Tunic, which is an ethical clothing cooperative that I started with my mom uh, four years ago now. Um, Before law school, I also studied uh, classical Islamic legal history at Cambridge. I did my master's there. And then in undergrad, um, which was also at Harvard, I studied political theory and Islamic legal history as well. So that's also an important passion of mine. Um, And in general, I just tried to live up to um, my parents' example. They taught me and my three siblings that, uh, you know, purpose of uh you know working in Estonia is to be of service inshallah and so that's what we all try to do.
0: What is the the transition uh, between law and uh, like Islamic studies and tunic and clothing how it starts and from where and (laughs) there's no real transition it makes no sense
1: (laughs) uh um it's hard for me to even explain like how i ended up starting a clothing company very random i could have never yani you know, foreseen it for myself subhanallah but um i think you know i'll t- i'll try i'll do my best um yani you know, so in undergrad i was studying as i said kind of political theory and also islamic history uh, at the same time and um that for me was really beautiful experience not just to learn about islamic law like how we as muslims should lead our lives but to learn about islamic history um for me it's about like how, you know what about these ideas um have actually been real on the ground in different ways in different societies throughout history so you know islam can be lived in so many different ways and can be part of so many different cultures what do those What have those cultures looked like? What were average people's lives like? And how much was Islam a part of that and an influence on that? Um, And so it was like about thinking about what other worlds can exist, both by looking at history and looking at political theory, like how are different ways that we can organize our societies to be more just or more, uh, you know, less harmful to the environment or all these things. Um, They intersect for me. You know, they're all about considering different possibilities. Um, and, you know, at the same time, there was the revolution in 2011 uh, in Tunisia and in many other places. And my parents had actually moved back to Tunis at that time. Um, so they were living there and, and working as as part of the transition to democracy. And so I was spending a lot more time in Tunis, and I had always been looking for a way to... Uh, just a way to contribute in some way I, you know as a, a tunisian american having so much privilege of being born in the united states was there just anything that i could bring you know often our kind of our home countries suffer from you know we talk about the brain drain and youth leaving and um, so my parents inspired me and my sister who also went back to Tunis inspired me to just uh, see if there was uh, anything useful that that I could do um so I was meeting a few artisans at the time and getting to know traditional Tunisian crafts because we were making some traditional clothes for my wedding and um, I just thought these crafts are so beautiful um I already had the idea swirling in my mind of having read like you know just Marx and all these other economic theorists about how unjust the world is, and I had at the same time and basic understanding of like Islamic law of contract and sales and and uh, economic norms. And so I thought, you know, there's a way to kind of do do all three <laughs> of these together, which is you know try to figure out how to support these artisans, and then also try to approach the project with the open question of like, is there a way as a Muslim in today's world to apply the kind of Islamic norms of trade and to have like a moral Islamic business um, that is beneficial to the world and doesn't cause harm? Because I had a, you know, and I still have a very negative uh, perception of the modern economy and, and how it treats workers and how it treats the environment and how wasteful it is and how um, just just ugly and superfluous it is. Like I didn't see business as something that could be a blessed enterprise. Um, so, you know, in talks with my mom, we just thought that, you know, we have nothing to lose. We could start really small with just one piece of clothing, just two artisans and just see what happens. Um, I think if I hadn't had her encouragement, I would have been way too um, terrified, uh, because (laughs) it's it's something so, so strange and out of left field for me, Uh, you know, fashion was not a particular passion of mine. Um, It just happened to be the way into the broader question that I had about like, what does it mean to to operate in the business world ethically as a Muslim? And does does our system offer really a cohesive alternative to the problems of the economic system we live in today? That was the main question really driving um, the work. And um, so we saw it as an opportunity to to do good in many different ways, inshallah.
0: Mashallah. So the question came to my mind, like you were talking about the modern economy and how you are trying to have this Islamic approach to business. So how how ethical is Junik and what makes it ethical? <laughs> so for someone who is learning, what is it like yeah. uh, to be an Islamic uh, corporate?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there there's so much. I, th- I think every single question that you face as a business owner or a founder of an enterprise is a moral and islamic question uh you know every choice you make has implications for the world whether you're gonna add beauty to the world or add harm so at its core i think that's kind of the principle that we sort of operate by but um i think there are maybe a few categories along which we try to be ethical um the first is just our production process so in terms of its environmental impact, um, you know, I think it's very clear in our religion that we're not uh, that we're meant to tread gently upon the earth, that we are not meant to pollute the earth, to um, to cut down trees, um, you know, to um, pollute our waterways. These are things that were heavily regulated throughout Islamic history by the market overseers. You know, how much air pollution, how much water pollution. Um, and the traditional ways of manufacturing clothing uh, do all of those things and more they're they're extremely harmful I think we're we as consumers we really have no idea we just kind of hear oh fast fashion is bad for the environment um, it's bad in every possible way <laughs> so it pollutes um, water it makes it toxic toxic for local communities it causes cancers um, it pollutes the air. Um, it causes enormous amount of waste just through sheer overproduction and use of plastic. It's a huge demand for the fossil fuel industry. So the carbon that's released causes global warming, all of these issues. And our approach was just to completely divorce ourselves and kind of in a way reinvent the wheel about how clothes are produced but also in a way not reinvent the wheel at all because it's about revival of traditional techniques so um you know people have produced clothing for thousands of years <laughs> without yeah. destroying the planet uh and there are indigenous communities all over the world and this also in tunisia that know still know how to do that um So it was about building our whole supply chain from, we always say, from sheep to shop. So we had to, you know, find shepherds, um, you know, just small flocks who were treating their sheep well, um, you know, shearing the wool with them in a sustainable way, in a way that's not harmful to the sheep, Um, you know, washing the wool without using any harmful um, scouring chemicals, just using water and sea salt and occasionally. Um, olive oil soap, you know, uh, not adding anything that would make our jobs easier because it would make the processing of these fibers so much faster. <laughs> um, but not doing those things, doing things the slow way and the traditional way. So, you know, we we wash everything by hand, we spin it, uh, we spin all the fibers by hand, we dye colors using plant uh, dyes or herbs, so we don't use any synthetic chemical dyes, which are really, really harmful to the environment. Um, All of these steps are very, very complicated. You know, there's an entire science to each of them. And um, sometimes the artisans would have that knowledge. Other times we'd have to rediscover it together, try to experiment and find ways to achieve different colors or ways to soften our wool naturally. Um, So, you know, from the dyeing to the weaving, to the embroidery, the cutting, the sewing, the embellishments, everything down to what our buttons are made of, our buckles, our labels, everything that goes into our final garment is completely natural and free of harm to the environment. Um, and it is entirely compostable. You know, I sometimes joke that you could just like order something from Tunic, take the whole box. And just like bury it in your backyard, and and it will like decompose naturally in a way that feeds the soil and is not, um, you know, not toxic or harmful, or dangerous in any way. Uh, so I think that's kind of our metric: is it has to um, fit into the site, the natural cycle of life. So wool is a compostable material. We don't add any synthetic chemicals to it to make it toxic to the soil. Um and that's been a really beautiful process for me, but it's also incredibly, incredibly challenging. It's really, really, it's really, really difficult. But subhanAllah, I think it's really connected us to, you know, the miracles of creation and to what natural materials that Allah has created for us to labor over what we can create from them and how they can provide for all of our needs and also create beauty in the world. Uh, you know, sometimes People think of sustainable clothing as like drab clothes, like they kind of picture just a bunch of brown things and not much, you know, style. But of course, people have created, you know, extravagant, colorful clothing for thousands of years without uh, without causing harm. And we're trying to, you know, rediscover and and reestablish those patterns. Um, Beyond the environmental impact, there's also just the impact on the workers. So one of the fundamental principles of um, Islamic law of commerce is, um, you know, about risk sharing and profit sharing, that when you enter into uh, a company together, uh, that everyone shares in the benefits that are created. So we structured the um, project as a cooperative, it's a horizontal producers cooperative so all the artisans own their own means of production they work from their homes there's no central factory or anything and they control their labor so they set their own prices they decide when they're going to work and when they're not going to work and sometimes they take you know six months off and they say hey you know, my daughter just had a baby, so I'm gonna go live with her, you know, help her with her the kids for the next six months, you know, see you next year. And I think that's really beautiful, the fact that communities are still, you know, a part of local life, you know, we're not just taking people um, out of their homes for, you know, nine hours a day in a factory. Uh, it's really uh, destructive to, you um, to kind of natural patterns of life and to beautiful ways that communities and families can flourish, and then we all share in the profits that are created in the cooperative. Everyone in the supply chain um, benefits when the cooperative has has profits. Um, so those are the two principles that kind of govern our our um, our cooperative structure. Um, in terms of um, you know the treatment of workers, I think what's definitive. Often often thought of as definitive of modern capitalism is not the ideas that some of us might have, like the idea of free trade or you know, um, unregulated economy or competition. All of these things are are also principles in in as I understand it in the Islamic approach to to trade and business. And they pre-existed capitalism, they've existed for thousands of years. But the distinct thing is often thought of as the centralization of capital and turning everyone else into wage workers so all of us you know the vast majority of people don't own enough to provide for themselves you know they work for other people they all they have to sell is their labor so they work for a company they you know they work for someone else who owns the capital whether it's the company the factory the machines the tools that are used to produce value and then they set your wages uh, and, you know, your wages will always be lower than the profits that you're creating through your labor. Um, so this is something that, you know, if someone has kind of read Marxist theory, they, they might find it familiar. But it's not, um, it's not unique to Marxist theory. And we don't have to be like Marxists to recognize that on this point, there is overlap between, in my view, the kind of like Islamic historical view of markets, like we don't think of wealth as income, we think of wealth as property. We don't even tax income; we tax standing property. That's what it get uh, is, and um, you know, even the term for wealth in Arabic, and ghani it's not uh, you know someone who has huge. Uh, you know, a, a very high salary. It's the idea of being self-sufficient, of being able to provide for yourself. And someone who is or poor is someone who is dependent on others um, and can't provide for their own needs. So just taking that principle was really important to us. It animates a lot of what we do, is preserving the independence of all of our artisans, making sure that they own the tools of their labor, the means of production, that they can at any point sell to someone else, not sell to the co-op, you know, they're still, you know, totally in control of that process. And that leads to a lot of um, uh, downward consequences that are really beneficial to the local community, just creating a circle of, of labor and kind of spreading that benefit as widely as possible.
0: Yeah. We've been talking for a long time, but there's, yeah. Yeah, your question was very <laughs> and I like the I like the response. Thank you so much. Like now we can maybe have another episode to talk about the Marxist Islamic <laughs> or the Islamic point of view of uh, yeah. there, like there are business. points of overlap, you know. I don't wanna overstate it. I don't wanna, yeah. you know,
1: be accused of
0: uh... I think we can have a huge debate. About mm. how how the theory of Marx can be islamic in some point and how it can be used in uh, like islamic corporates. I think this is a very interesting idea Uh, yeah and I think it needs like one hour of debate yes you're (laughs) right (laughs) but I really like it like thank you so much for uh, like uh, this answer now like everyone I think everyone listening to us will understand how to have like an ethical business and how to like uh, to translate our islamic values in our business and in our corporates, uh, you talked about how challenging it is. Um, so here I want to know, like you as a female, like Muslim student, researcher, how can you balance? Uh, like, how can you have this uh, work-life balance and also this uh, like uh, business and uh, studies balance in your life? And how are you doing it to inspire other women like to be uh, entrepreneurs as well? Yeah,
1: I mean I, there's no way I could do it alone so alhamdulillah I think the timing really worked out so you know I I spent the the first um the first year of tunic um you know, completely full-time, I wasn't doing anything else. Um, my mom was in Tunis and we were working together. It was just the two of us, you know, driving all over the country, showing up in random towns, asking, you know, does anyone know any weavers here, any traditional weavers, just kind of going from house to house, having tea with a lot of people. And so the when we were building the project, it really was, you know, completely full-time, total dedication. Um, you know, I we were kind of uh working downstairs out of my grandfather's garage, the kind of classic garage story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know it's the Tunisian one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and um, you know, I would be there, I, I when I would wake up, I would go down there first thing in the morning and I would be there until like, you know, eleven or something. Yeah. And um I had never worked so hard before, but I really loved it. I really just I just it was just a passion every problem that we face I I you get so much so much joy from being able to try to find a creative solution to it to find a way around it and subhanallah I think also we we also felt so much blessings in that because sometimes we really would come up against an obstacle that we just had no way how we could possibly overcome and then you know the solution would come and it would feel like a miracle alhamdulillah um, so it, you know, I think in the second year, then I, I started my master's and I was uh, more part-time on Tunic, but my particular degree program was very flexible. It was just a one-year master's, not a lot of class time, mostly researching and writing a dissertation on the Tunisian National Archives. So, you know, lots <laughs> of trips to Tunis, working on Tunic, going to the archives occasionally, um... And so I was doing both at the same time. Uh, And then in the third year, I was full-time on Tunic again. Um, And it was that year that we, alhamdulillah, we finally, you know, started to nail down our production process. We started to really get the quality of products that, uh, that we were proud of, that we were happy with, you know, we figured out all these other questions, you know, I haven't even talked about kind of the moral questions of how to do product photography, like how to display the human body in a way that's, that's, you know, morally, um, sound according to our religion, you know, how to approach advertising and marketing. Sometimes these things are, I think they have really important ethical questions. How much are you kind of forcing people to buy? You don't want to add too much pressure to the problem of overconsumption. You know, these are these are all um, important questions about how to run an ethical business that I think we were thinking about carefully, and that uh, you know that that in my view, you know, kind of all Muslim businesses should think about carefully if they can. Um, so in that year, we, alhamdulillah, we were really blessed with with um, with a lot of growth. And when we started to bring on, you know, staff members, so before then, it was just the artisans creating and us, and they would, you know, send the products to us, or we would go visit them and pick them up um and we would do all the packaging and the shipping and the customer emails and the partnership emails and the press and uh you know the paperwork with the government there's a lot of regulation and compliance That we have to deal with you know taxing and accounting we were doing all of that just my mom and i um and um and in that year we started to finally bring on team members and staff members in the office with us who are doing the shipping and fulfillment and that's the only thing that has made it possible for me to also pursue um other goals at the same time So, um, you know, I've really focused on training that year because I knew that the following year I would be going to law school uh, and I would be much busier. (laughs) Um, So, uh, alhamdulillah, we're blessed with just the most incredible, you know, team members and partners um, who really understood the vision, um, really connected to the mission of what we were trying to do and um and are just very talented people so you know they learn so quickly and and they 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 wrap beautiful packages they respond with their hearts and souls whenever customers send us messages uh and so when i started law school that's when i kind of shifted into this pattern of maybe just doing like 10 hours a week on tunic and mostly remote and so you know i have meetings we look at product samples on on microsoft teams (laughs) we try to solve problems and i try to give ideas just through my experience of the past three years maybe this could work if we try it this way um you know uh oh you know go meet that person in that government office and tell them last time they told me that this paper was all we needed so they can't say we need another paper now Uh, you know things like that those are the kinds of challenges we face all the time is You know, figuring out how to create a new product that is beautiful and is quality, but without using any harmful materials or dealing with some new regulatory compliance issue or dealing with some quality control issue. You know, artisans working from their homes, it's not very natural that things are going to look different from each other when they come or they're not going to, you know, always get everything done Correctly or exactly the way that we you know might have preferred it to be done, because this is all hand work. Um, and just you know constantly improving. So it's it's the, it's the greatest joy of my life. i I often feel guilty, you know, splitting the time between law school and and tunic because so many people rely on tunic now, the the cooperative has grown so much. Um, that I, I, I really feel the impact of what I do when I spend my time on Tunic. And with law school, you know, it's kind of a long-term, a long-term impact that is, that is not necessarily felt right now. But uh, alhamdulillah, I think, you know, just uh, Allah has given me a lot of tawfiq and my time to be able to do that. And I have a lot of privilege as well to, uh, to be able to pursue those things.
0: Alhamdulillah, I love how smooth this project is going. Like I know it's challenging. I know there are a lot of uh, behind the scenes that we cannot see, but I'm really getting this positive vibes from you. On we can like study, but at the same time have our own project, and it can like go sm- smooth if we believe in it and believe in the cause that uh, that is behind uh, our business. I will I will come back to you as a student. And uh, I think I want to ask uh, how it is like, how it's looking to be uh, a Muslim student at Harvard and Harvard uh, and to study, especially law. Like, how is it the experience? Uh, I love it so much. <laughs> I have
1: to say, I think uh, I I th- this is my take. This might be a hot take. <laughs> I think <laughs> being a Muslim, particularly in law school is a huge advantage um, you know, over other students. I said this to the dean, actually, one time last year that he came to a Ramadan iftar that the Harvard Muslims were having. And, uh, and uh, we were having a conversation, the dean of the law school, with kind of the Muslim law students all together at a table. And he was really surprised because there's kind of the, always the narrative of, You know, being a minority, especially a demonized minority, especially a minority that faces a lot of violence at the hands of the law or justified by the law in the United States and abroad. Um, But I I think it's it's a total asset. And uh, it's been really interesting for me, especially having studied Islamic law a little bit before, that I'm always thinking of that in the back of my mind when I learn something about American legal doctrine. I think, you know, it's so interesting that Islam approaches this differently. And sometimes you see how um, the debates that are happening around law in the United States, should it be this way or that way, are very narrow. They haven't even considered a whole other expanse of possibilities that we as Muslims know to be possible. Um, and, you know, it's not just a sense of superiority of like, oh, everything I'm studying, you know, Islamic law is better. It's not that. It's, um, it's to think interestingly about uh, and, and to think carefully about how changing just subtle things about how the law works, about how a particular doctrine of contract works, has huge effects on how an entire society uh, functions. Um, you know how you know property is distributed how equitable that society is for example so it's interesting to study as a muslim because you have that in the back of your mind i think you have a more expansive view of what is possible and um you're not always on one side of the debate, you know, you're not always just like always, you know, whatever the progressive view is, that's my view of what the law should be, or whatever the conservative view is, that's my view. You as a Muslim, you're kind of, you're off that spectrum, you have um, unique positions. I think people often, people in my class, for example, they're often surprised by my views, they can never pin me down what I'm going to (laughs) say, never predict. Um, And that's nice. And I think it, I think it helps you uh, as a student, uh, you know, I think it'll make you a more successful student. Um, you have more interesting things to say in class, you know, you have a, um, you know, a, a unique perspective when you write your exam, it'll be different from anyone else's. And that's, uh, that's a benefit, you know, just even just from getting good grades perspective, let alone, you know, from the intellectual experience, it's really been a rich intellectual experience. You know, I'm, I'm, I've always been the only hijabi in every single class I've taken at the law school. Um, and, uh, it could be, I can't be sure, you know, it could be like, uh, maybe harmful people have always treated me kindly, but on the plus side, uh, you know, I stand out and my professors always know my name. They never confuse me with anyone <laughs> else. <laughs> this is the good point of hijab. <laughs> I you know I, I'm very recognizable, you know, people 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 learn my name quickly on, on campus. Um, so I think there are a lot of pros. I, I think it's been nothing but a blessing for me, alhamdulillah. And I'm sure that, you know, I don't want to just put rose-colored glasses on it. Um, you know there are challenges and and uh sometimes maybe people have first impressions about kind of you know muslim women or visibly muslim women whether they're visible or not uh that uh, you know they might underestimate you or whatever but uh, but I think we have a lot of assets and uh we have a lot of uh, advantages as muslims that um that uh, will will help us succeed so I would encourage anyone to you know, pursue their studies, and particularly law school, because it's a it's a really rich intellectual experience. Um, you know, especially as a Muslim and coming at it from from our perspective. Uh, so I've loved it so much. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's amazing. Talking about hijab, you know that we are celebrating the, the International Hijab Day, uh, the 1st of February. It's in like three days. Uh, so it will be interesting to talk about hijab and you know that like some women especially in europe they are struggling like how to be accepted and respected with their hijab at work or workplaces or universities etc so mashallah you have very good like a very positive experience as a hijabi woman uh, so what would be your advice to them or what is your perspective about like uh, being a hijabi in the west you know i'm not sure that my experience
1: would be helpful at all to what hijabis are facing, like in Europe or in France. I think it's a totally different, different experience. I mean, from a distance, it seems to be just extremely challenging. Um, it's kind of drilling outside. Should I stop and wait for it to
0: stop <laughs> so it doesn't I think, sound? Uh, can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. Oh, uh, not. I think now I cannot hear it. It's a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, but all my windows are. No, closed. it's fine. I think it's fine now. Okay, yeah, it's fine. Okay.
1: So yeah, I think it's 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 a different experience that I'm not familiar with. So you know, I would be I would be very hesitant to try to give advice to. Um, you know, to 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 Muslim women and and hijabi women facing you know a totally different context, um, yeah. except to just express my love and solidarity and and encouragement. Um, you know, I I was someone who who started covering my hair much later in life, um, so I had you know a love very long period of time uh, you know not being Visibly Muslim and and not experiencing what hijab is like, it really is different. It, really is, <laughs> it yeah. really is very different. It really changes how you walk through the world, how people see you on first glance. Um, but um, I, you know, I have found it to be a, a beautiful experience. You know, we sometimes we're just like, oh, it's just a piece of cloth, it's just a piece of cloth. But culturally you are seen differently and treated differently by Muslims and non-muslims and that affects your heart um, for me um, the you know we can discuss the law and you know the mandatoriness and those that's of course the most important thing but uh, for me what helped me the most I would say um, is, just uh, acclimatizing myself and also being in community with other Muslim women. So much of what we see as normal is just based on who's around us. Uh, You know, if, you know, women grow up in a society where they're just used to wearing, you know, much less clothing, they feel perfectly comfortable in that clothing. It's like they've been sensitized to that. Um, but if you kind of sensitize yourself to our standard of dress, I think kind of every hijabi talks about, like, once they start wearing it, then they feel like naked without it Just something <laughs> yeah. you've never felt before. Um, and, and so that happens and, and that, and you can help try to help create that for yourself, you know, about what you surround yourself with, what kind of level you, um, you accept for yourself and the company that you keep and and your sohba and and how that um, how that gives you strength and that's all i can say in my experience but but uh but i i know the european context really is has is quite different
0: yeah thank you so much iman i think yeah like uh, it's true that maybe muslim hijabi women in europe are struggling more than the us Uh, but uh, I think that everyone should take you an example like how to be like student at the same time you have your own project and being like involved in the society and being there like and uh, try to be you should like i think hijabi women they should be respected in all societies and like this is what we choose like we choose to wear hijab like all other women so this is our choice and it should be respected like there is no negotiation in <laughs> in, in that for debate <laughs> yeah exactly it's out of debate like this is our choice and we should be respected with it uh, so yeah, thank you so much, Iman. It was really uh, very thoughtful to hear your your opinion, like your opinion about business, how to have like this Islamic uh, corporate. Uh, mashallah, this is very very inspiring, and I think like uh, all women and ever men, like everyone who is listening to us, will get inspired about this story uh, of having like uh, an Islamic corporate, an Islamic business. And also to help like communities, like communities in Tunis, uh, to grow and uh, uh, to be like uh, more ethical. Uh, this is very, very inspiring. Uh, I'm so happy like to have this call, this talk with you. It was very, uh, uh interesting. Uh, thank you so much. And maybe we can have like, uh, many, many other talks uh, to talk about like your progress and, uh, to see your, like your success, uh, as a student and as an entrepreneur and, uh, as a woman too, like, uh, we want to celebrate like your, uh, your successes. So, um, we are so happy to have you. Uh, thank you so much. Like, if you have any other like uh, last comment or last thing to say,
1: oh, thank you so much, Sara. Barakallah, fikar. It's just been a pleasure, and uh, I hope uh, I hope to talk again soon, inshallah. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, I've spoken to um, a lot of a lot of uh, Muslims and non-Muslims from other you know other immigrant backgrounds and. Looking to start projects of their own, or maybe in ethical fashion in their home countries, or traditional crafts in their countries, uh, you know, please, you know, feel free to reach out to me, or if it's about anything else, also, <laughs> I'd love to talk. Um, so yeah, Barakalafi. Thank
0: you so much. We will share uh, Tunic with all like uh, our followers uh, in Femisu and in this podcast. They will find it on the description, uh, and they can reach out to you and uh, like buy from Tunic and know <laughs> Tunic more. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, so thank you so to everyone who is listening to us, uh, and hopefully we will be soon in another episode very soon. Thank you so much.